of Speaking, a monthly podcast on the spoken word. Episode number 57, October 2022. How We Learn to Talk. A conversation with Jenny Safran. Hi, Paul Meyer here. British by birth and probably because I am now a long expat Brit. I felt the ending of the second Elizabethan age this past month quite deeply more deeply than I anticipated. Queen Elizabeth, regardless of my feeling about the monarchy, was as close as I could imagine to something permanent and unshifting in my life. So I felt compelled to open this month's podcast episode with a respectful farewell. R.I.P. Elizabeth Regina. Now, guess that accent. Last time I played this clip from the International Dialects of English Archive, Idea, and challenged you to say where on the planet the speaker grew up. If it was not for her, I would have been incomplete. I am blessed. I became a Baptist minister, and I preached a ministry of reconciliation because we all desire a second chance. So what do you think? If you guessed somewhere in the American South, well done. But if you narrowed it down to Tennessee... Congratulations indeed. It was Ideas Tennessee 17, contributed by Jacqueline Springfield, our editor for the Southern United States. Thanks again, Jacqueline. The subject, a 66-year-old black man, a preacher, was born and raised in Huntersville, near Jackson. For the whole recording and Jacqueline's transcription of it and excellent scholarly commentary, Go to the Dialects and Accents tab on the menu bar of dialectsarchive.com and choose Tennessee from the United States under the North America tab. Now, this month's challenge, where did this speaker spend her formative years? Well, I mean, I can live here now because I have a car and I can commute right. and I can go into town and I can't get me and I have, as my own children will say, I have the best of both worlds. Get the answer next time. By the way, if you have found idea useful to you, please consider making a small donation to go towards the upkeep of this entirely free, commercial-free resource. Click the Support Idea link on the right-hand side of any page of dialectsarchive.com. A quick reminder, for the free extra content related to this episode, go to paulmeyer.com. Choose In a Manner of Speaking from the Other Services tab on the menu bar and click episode number 57. You won't find this extra material anywhere except on my website. My guest this month is Jenny Safran, a professor at the University of Madison, Wisconsin. She's a leader in the field of language acquisition and a member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. Hi, Jenny, and welcome to In a Manner of Speaking. Thank you so much for having me. So. Language acquisition. We touched on this a little bit with David Crystal last month, uh, but left plenty of room for you as the expert to join in this conversation. So language acquisition, it's a kind of a miracle, isn't it? I mean, we learn to talk without any instruction. How is that? (laughs) You know, it's such a miraculous feeling thing that even when I had my own kids, you know, I study this stuff and I would watch them and be like, how are they doing this? It's like a miracle, <laughs> even though this is what I do for a living. So yes. it, it is it is quite extraordinary. It's one of the only domains where 
little teeny squishy people who can't hold their heads up very well or locomote particularly <laughs> accurately mm -hmm. or feed themselves, do something in a way that's arguably better than you and me. And it's so lovely to hear a scientist, you know, cold, observant scientist still acknowledge the, the, the miraculousness of it. That's great. I think if I ever stopped being stunned by what I study, it wouldn't be worth studying. I think a professor who has lost his or her passion for the subject is, uh, that's time for them to hang up their mortarboard, don't you think? Big time. Big time, <laughs> yes. Let's start with this YouTube clip. I've got a YouTube clip lined up. It's that famous clip of twin babies in conversation outside a refrigerator. I know, I you've know it seen well. <laughs> it. It's garnered over 200 million hits since it was posted in 2011, 11 years ago from today. And those little kids would be now about 12. I, mm -hmm. I, I wonder if they know they're the most celebrated babies on the face <laughs> of the earth. I bet they do. The audio alone doesn't do it justice. So I'm going to be sure to post the link so that people can tune in and see the, see the video as well. It doesn't really do it full justice. It's hard to know that there's actually two babies, two twin babies speaking sometimes because they sound so much alike, but mm -hmm. it's very animated as you remember. And they're listening intently to each other and, and making their points emphatically. And, and they frequently laugh uproariously at uh, something the other one has said. I needed that smile on a oh. on a busy Tuesday afternoon. That and was there, great. And there are these two babies in diapers, fully engaged with each other, making eye contact, gesticulating to each other, and giving a really good impression of a conversation. But what is going on, Jenny, with these two <laughs> kids who cannot yet really hold a real conversation? They've got the rhythms and the turn-taking of real conversation. What do you hear as a specialist? Well, I will say I, I show this in my classes for the same reason you just did. It's it's charming um, and uh, also mysterious. I mean, my best guess is they're playing a game. They've seen lots of adults interacting this way with each other and interacting with them, where the adults, uh, you know, adults talk at each other and gesture and seem to <laughs> find it very entertaining and um and we interact with babies that way too. We do all sorts of things when we're interacting with babies to try to grab their attention, to make them smile, to make them laugh. And here the babies are doing that with each other and it's absolutely charming. I mean, does it mean anything? No, <laughs> uh, I don't think they're having a deep conversation about you know the meaning what, of life. What, um, what, are they, what are they laughing at? <laughs> just sheer joy. I just, mean, it doesn't take much to make a baby laugh. Smiling at a baby, um, playing funny music, uh, making a funny face will get them to laugh. I think they're just yeah. they are just enjoying this moment. They're yeah. having a good time. What kind of proto-language do we hear going on? I, I mentioned the turn-taking and perhaps the rhythms of conversation. Uh, can you detect the beginnings of language there? What can we hear? I, I guess they're, what, a little over one year old. They're, they're just starting to walk. Yeah, I mean, they're they're doing what we call babbling, which is uh, sort of repetitive, 
sequences of syllables that babies the world over start to make starting around six months of age. Younger babies, babies under about six months of age, make simpler sounds, sort of, we call them cooing. They make sounds like, ah, just sort of an open vocal tract. Starting around six months of age, when babies start to babble, all they're initially doing is they take that open vocal tract, so ah, and then just close their mouth over it. Ah, ba, 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 ba. That's what early babbling is. Yeah. And what's kind of cool about really early babbling is it sounds the same the world over. It's not driven by language exposure. Uh, we know that because babies who are deaf also sound the same as oh. hearing babies around six months of age. They do the same thing with their mouths. But by the time babies are about these babies' age, they're probably, as you said, around one, babbling has started to really take on some of the contours of the baby's native language. And you could hear the pitch contours of their speech, like an yes. utterance that you or I would make where it rises and then it falls and it rises and then it falls. They're mimicking um, the sounds of, I actually don't know what their native language is. I've always assumed they were English speaking babies, but maybe not. Well, and that's the beauty of these early productions is they're very language-like, but they're not specific to any particular language. It is the case that babies will start to use the sounds more characteristic of their native language, syllables that they'd have been hearing in their native language by this age. So babies do sound different around the world by the time they're eight, 10, 12 months of age. And also if they happen to be learning a sign language, they'll be babbling with their hands too. Uh -huh. um, they'll make repetitive movements in their hands in sort of like ba, 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 ba. But if you could see me, you would see that I'm shaking my wrist in a repetitive way. Babies not learning sign languages don't do that. So they, you know, they're starting to be sculpted. Their brains are definitely being sculpted by the structure of their native language. But what I think is the coolest part actually is that what they know about their native language is vastly more than you can tell from what they say. So these babies here that you, you know, where we heard the ba, 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 they, if they're 12 months of age, they probably understand somewhere between 10 and 30 words, I'm guessing. Right. right. They can't say them, but they right. understand them. It's quite remarkable how much more babies know about their native language than we can tell just by sort of hanging out with them. David Crystal, last month in the uh, podcast I did with David, revealed to me that I think at six months or so, you can tell if their future language, when it finally emerges, is going to be stress-timed or syllable-timed. And so mm. I thought that was remarkable. And he, and he does a little imitation of versus you know, maybe, maybe various syllable-timed versus stress-timed. And what I think is even cooler is even younger than that, babies' patterns of what they want to listen to reflects whether the language that they're learning is stress-timed or syllable-timed. They'll prefer listening to languages that map onto the timing structure, the rhythmic structure of their native language, almost as early as you can test them. And you've got perception studies, I'm sure, that, that show them turning on to languages that are similar to their own language structure, right? 
uh, not myself, but yes, people in my field, for sure. That's exactly the sort of work that, that lots of folks have been doing for a long time. Mm -hmm. I remember the miracle of my, my own son, Cameron Meyer, just turned 50. <laughs> I remember him when he was a baby. He's now the executive editor of the International Dialects of English Archive, and uh, he, plays oh, a cool. huge, he plays a huge part in Paul Meyer Dialect Services and edits this podcast, and among other jobs. But my wife and I remember vividly the day he discovered grammar. I guess that's what he was doing, and he constructed his first sentence. His word for the cat was me, perhaps echoing the meow of the cat. I don't mm -hmm. know. Cute. Door. He could get out a little bit of door, but he truncated it to do. And the word open, he truncated to o. And, and right mm -hmm. in front of him, in the living room, the family cat wanted to leave the room. Mm. And he curled his front paw around the door, which stood ajar, and pulled it open enough to slink mm. around it and make his dignified exit. Mm -hmm. Cameron watched all this intently, processing it all. And then his first sentence. He proclaimed, Mio do, the cat opened the door. That's um, a pretty complicated sentence. How, how old so. was he? Not yet two. Yeah, you don't get a lot of three-word sentences from babies um, until, until they're around two. But again, right? they do seem to understand certain aspects of grammar of their native language um, yeah, I mean, well yeah, before that, which is yeah. cool. At 18 months, for example, if you show them two videos and they hear something like the dog is pilking the cat or the dog and the cat are pilking, so a transitive verb versus an intransitive verb, they don't yes. know what pilking means, but they'll fixate the video if they hear the dog is pilking the cat, they will fixate a video that shows a dog doing something to a cat. And if Got they it. hear the dog and the cat are pilking, they'll fixate a video of the two uh, the two agents engaging in separate actions. So they're they're picking up on these structures early. It's it's unusual to produce them though, like your son did. Well, he's remarkable, of course, being my son. Yeah. <laughs> All of our children are. All <laughs> everyone listening, your child is remarkable, regardless of what they can and can't do. But but Cameron got the subject verb object thing, right? Yeah. Cat, open door. Me oh do. Mm -hmm. I guess if he'd been a German baby, he might have said me do oh. Put verb in the last position. He might have one way I like to think about this is sort of Every language has things that are hard and every language has things that are easy. And so the sort of trajectory of what kids seem to master, if you look across languages, is sort of more predicted by just what's easy than uh -huh. by what specific structures per se. Okay, that's fascinating. So are you a clinician as well as a, a researcher or what do you do? I am not a clinician. I collaborate with clinicians. I couldn't diagnose someone to save my life or save their life. Tell us a little bit about your research obsessions. I'm really interested in what kinds of learning abilities babies bring to the world. And in particular, how they apply those learning abilities to the complexities of natural languages. Human languages are probably the most complicated thing we ever have to learn. You know, we still can't really program computers to fully understand them. We can't write down all the rules of a language. And yet, uh, like you said, your son figured out 
subject verb object order by the age of two. So mm -hmm. how do we do that? And in particular, how do babies hone in on what matters and what to learn about in all the speech that is constantly flowing over them? And so in my lab, what we do is we do experiments where we focus on particular aspects of the language learning problem that babies face. And we create sort of little miniature learning worlds where babies get exposed to, for example, a made up language that has a particular structure in it. And we can then measure whether or not the babies learn what it is that we have expose them to. And then we essentially engage in a reverse engineering kind of logic, which is, well, if the babies learn the structure that we gave them in the lab, and we kind of know how they must have learned it because we built something very simple for them to learn, then that gives us some hints about the kinds of learning abilities that they must bring to bear on real big fat languages that they would experience in the wild. Gosh. Yeah. Fascinating. Word boundaries. I understand that young kids learn very, very early, much earlier than I would have thought, how to pick out the in individual words from the long strings of connected speech that I'm uttering now. I mean, if someone who didn't speak English was listening to me now, they'd hear a long string of connected speech. Am I correct in understanding that very much younger children than we would have predicted can do this? They can pick out word boundaries. Yeah. So you're describing one of the problems that's fascinated me for a long time, which is that we don't talk like this. No white spaces. Exactly. As in writing, right? Exactly. There are no white spaces in talking. And, you know, we can all exhibit this to ourselves just by sitting on the bus in front of someone who's speaking Russian. And it sounds like they're going blah, 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 blah. So on the one hand, okay, people don't pause between their words, but from a baby's perspective, this is really problematic because you can't learn the meaning of dog or cup or sit unless you can actually figure out something about what that word unit is. And if the words are all glued together, it's going to be really hard to start to map individual words to meanings, which is the prerequisite for the kind of learning about grammar that we were talking about a few minutes ago. Yes. And we don't teach so, babies. We don't hold up flashcards with a picture of a dog on and just say the word <laughs> dog. That's not how we, we do not. We do not. And if we did, it would not be very effective. And they also don't need us to do that. They figure no. it out. Yeah. Um, but even if we tried, I mean, let's say we wanted to try to teach babies individual words. How would you teach them the? I mean, it's just not plausible, right? Like, because we can't even, I as an adult would have a difficult time defining the meaning of the word the. So the the interesting thing that you were alluding to, the sort of research finding, is that infants actually start being able to find word boundaries in this sort of sea of sound that they're floating in really quite early, certainly in the second half of the first postnatal year, possibly before that. And so one of the things we've been very interested in studying is how do babies figure out where one word ends and the next one begins? Because we don't talk like this. So have you figured it out? Part of how babies solve this problem of finding out where words begin and end 
is by doing something that seems kind of counterintuitive because it sounds fancy. But when you stop and think about it, it's not very fancy. We've been studying how babies track the statistics of sounds in order to figure out where words begin and end. It turns out, sort of just by dint of the logic of how words work, sounds that go together frequently, that predict one another, tend to be part of the same words. And sounds that don't predict one another or don't co-occur frequently tend to be not part of the same words. And so to give you an example, take sequence like pretty baby. Now you and I know that there's a boundary at the end of T and before pr, so that pretty is a word and baby is a, no- is a word. Yes. But of course, babies don't know that at the beginning, right? So pretty baby could be one four-syllable word. It could be four one-syllable words. Right. How would you know? Yeah. Turns out that one way you could know is by dint of these statistical regularities. So for example, in English, the syllable pr doesn't happen in that many words. Um, It happens in pretty, pretend, prevaricate, predilection. It doesn't happen at the ends of words. That is 100% true. In fact, if you look at how we talk to babies and actually look at some corpora and do some math, it turns out that if a baby hears the syllable pr, there's a very high probability that the next syllable is going to be T. I think it's around 80% of the time if a baby hears pr, T in English, T is going to be the next sound. So Uh those two fit together really well. Uh But when you get to the next syllable, so let's go from T to bay, T happens in a lot of words. It happens at the end of a lot of words. And so it turns out that T is only followed by bay, a vanishingly small percentage of the time in English. Hmm. And so that provides the learner in principle, if a learner can keep track of these regularities, then that's a pretty strong signal that, oh, pretty, that's a chunk that goes together. Maybe that's a unit or something like a word. T bay, no. If I had to lay money on what's going to come after tea, I'm going to say tea cup or, I don't know, dress because I hear pretty dress or something like that. I'm not going to bet on bay. And so what we did in some experiments much earlier in my career is to actually expose babies to sequences of syllables where we built in statistics like this. And Uh we simply asked the babies can you figure out where one word ends and the next one begins? Although, of course, we didn't actually ask them because they were (laughs) eight months old, but we used uh, some pretty standard experimental methods. So we would play babies speech that sounded like it just sounds like a string of syllables, but they're actually words in there. So a word would be something like golabu or pabiku. And babies listen to this for a couple minutes. And then we tested them to see if they could tease apart sequences that were words in the speech, like golabu, syllables that tended to co-occur together, yes. from sequences of syllables that went across a word boundary, sort of like t-bay and the pretty baby example. And babies oh. were sensitive to those differences, telling us that they are actually picking up on these patterns without being instructed to do so. It's sort of like our brains are just stopping up all this information about what predicts what, which kind of makes sense. That's sort of what brains are built to do. And what what I've been thinking while you've been explaining this is that 
you know, there are certain sounds like like the ng sound, as in sing, which never begins a word in English, right? Mm-hmm. Is that exactly? That but it does begin words in other languages. Yes. So babies have to figure out, and they do actually learn this during the first year. They have to figure out that in English, the ng sound is correlated with being at the end of a word, and so it's sort of predictive of being at the end of a word but it is not correlated with being at the beginning of a word. And so if you hear something with mm in it, you can make a decent bet that that's the end of a word. I'll give you another example because you were talking about rhythm earlier. In English, when we talk to babies, if they hear a two-syllable word, the stress is generally going to be on the first syllable. Pretty, baby, mommy, language, so on and so forth. There are not a lot of words in English, like, I mean, there are some like record or attend, but they're not. The vast majority of two syllable words are uh, trochaic in English, aren't they? Exactly. And by nine months of age, English learning babies have figured that out. And so they will place a bet if they hear a trochaic sequence, a strong weak sequence, they will place a bet that the strong syllable starts a word and the weak syllable ends a word. They won't be right all of the time. But all of these cues sort of cohere together. Whereas Mm. if you're a baby learning French, that is not a pattern that you would want to impose on your language because you'd be wrong a vast majority of the time because French is not a trochaic language. What babies seem to start learning is there's a whole concert of cues. Some of them are cues that are going to be helpful across lots of languages like these statistical regularities I mentioned. And then some are very specific to an individual language. So some languages, stress patterns are going to be helpful. Other languages, stress patterns are not going to be helpful. And with all that information in hand, they start to be able to pull out where the words begin and end in speech. And then they can start mapping meanings to them. You promised me something that was simple. And it is simple and kind of obvious in its own way, but yet very profound. I think it's fascinating because it suggests that, again, without instruction, without being told what to attend to, babies really are being sculpted. It's a beautiful nature and nurture situation. So the nurture part is they're being sculpted by the structure of their native language. If they're learning, say, a tonal language like Mandarin or Thai, they're going to start attending to the pitch contours of syllables. If they're learning English, they're going to learn to ignore the pitch contours of syllables because that's just going to be confusing and not very informative. Not that it's irrelevant, of course. It's relevant at some level, at the, say, sentential level, like is it a question or a... But if you start to think that dog and dog have different meanings, that's going to be really confusing. (laughs) But that could be true in Mandarin. It is true in Mandarin. So you have the sort of nature, the structure of these individual languages is sculpting what babies are attending to, what data they're keeping track of. At the same time, the nature part is they have to kind of show up with these factory installed learning abilities Hmm. that allow them to extract all this information from their language, to remember it, to learn from it. And they certainly have some attentional biases as well, where there are just certain things they prefer to listen to and look at, and that's probably going to bias what they end up learning. You're going to learn more about things that interest you. In infant's case, um, they like to listen to people talk in a certain way. They'll learn more 
about things that interest them than things that don't interest them, interest mm-hmm. them, just like you and me. So mm-hmm. it's this exquisite melding of nature and nurture, which I just think is so cool. Hmm. This may be a digression, but there are some parenting books, I think, that frown upon the use of baby talk. What's your view on, on how one should address a baby? Well, there's two different framings of baby talk out there in the world. And so it depends a little bit on what you mean. If you mean the like goo goo gaga, like don't use real words thing, yeah, whatever. In moderation, I don't think it's an issue, but you probably want the baby to get exposed to like actual words in their language. The, The part that's been more heavily studied where I would definitely disagree with that book advice is The way we naturally talk to babies, we call it infant-directed speech. It's slow. It has very clear vowels. It has exaggerated pitch contours. If I'm talking to a baby, I'm going to say, look at the turtle. Do you see mommy's turtle? And if I'm talking to you, I'm going to say, look at the turtle. Do you see mommy's turtle? Much more interesting world to be a baby then, isn't it? It is. But... (laughs) I mean, you wouldn't want to listen to it all day. It would make your skin crawl. But (laughs) it's this very musical, attention-grabbing form of communication that has a lot of emotion in it, especially positive emotion. Decades of research demonstrates that babies prefer listening to that sort of talk. They will listen longer to speech that has those pitch patterns in it. And uh, some of our own research suggests that they actually learn more from it, probably because it's more interesting. So my general parenting advice is do what comes naturally. Don't worry too much. Your kid will be fine. Hopefully those parenting books are going to catch up on this particular finding, given that it's been very widely replicated around the world. I know that one of the the areas that fascinates you, uh, Jenny, is, is the difference between children who are at risk for language challenges uh, and that they may learn in different ways from children Mm -hmm. who are not at risk. Take us through that particular topic. We do a lot of work where we use what are called eye trackers. So these are essentially infrared cameras. They're embedded in a computer monitor and they can figure out where you're looking on a screen by sort of interpolating these infrared trackers. We use this a lot with babies because if we want to know if a baby knows a word like cup, we can put a cup and a ball on the screen in front of the baby and say, where's the cup? And we can measure whether their eyes shift to the cup and if so, Mm. how quickly. And there's all sorts of questions we can ask there. And so we've been starting to take these methods and using them with children who have severe developmental challenges like cerebral palsy, where they can't talk and they can't point. And we're interested in asking whether we can use their eyes as a way of getting inside their minds to understand more about what language they understand, if any. Often for these children, their parents don't even know if they understand any words. If we could start to answer questions like that for parents and for clinicians, I think it could be hugely valuable. I mean, who wouldn't want to know what words their child knows? So collaborating with clinical scientists who have a lot of expertise and studying children with quite severe motor challenges, um, I think is a really exciting direction. That is exciting. 
This has been fascinating today. Let's end up with talking about sign language. I know that you, one of the topics you thought we might talk about was how, how sign language learning might be similar or different. Mm-hmm. Part of why um, I really like talking about sign language learning, like learning American sign language or British sign language, is first just to point out that sign languages are full natural languages. They have all the complexity of English or Japanese or Urdu, and they're mutually unintelligible. If you speak American sign language and you meet someone who speaks Japanese sign language, you can't understand each other any more than someone who speaks English can understand someone who speaks Japanese. I think that's just really important so people understand that these are um, these aren't just gestures or sort of me Tarzan you Jane kinds of systems. They are mm-hmm. full, rich, linguistically complex systems. Would they not have the advantage of being intelligible? across language differences. So if, if, am I right that a French speaker can understand a Spanish speaker can understand a Russian speaker if they both, if they're all using the same conventions, the same sign language? If they were, but they probably wouldn't be using the same sign language because those countries all have different sign languages. Okay. I'm showing my ignorance here. No, it's okay. I think there's, you know, there are hundreds of sign languages in the world. And yes, that they're related. So for example, like I believe Quebec sign language is pretty close to French sign language. And so they, I might be wrong about that, but they might be mutually intelligible if that's the case. In the same way that like Parisian French and Quebecois French are mutually intelligible, but also clearly different dialects. Yes. I've studied some ASL. I knew someone in grad school who was a Japanese sign language speaker, and I could not understand any of it. So just like spoken languages. But what's really cool is that babies pick up on sign language exposure really, really quickly. If you uh, look at the average age of first productions of words. So for spoken languages like English, the average age at which a child says their first word is around 12 months. But for sign language like ASL, American Sign Language, the average age is 10 months. Uh-huh. And in fact, if you look at a baby who is bilingual learning English and ASL, they will produce signs before they'll start to produce speech, probably because the muscles involved are just less complicated with the hands than with the mouth. The tongue has so many muscles in it. It's super complicated. What a fascinating field you are in. Thanks so much for joining me today. Absolutely. My pleasure. And thanks to you for joining me, Paul Meyer, and my guest, Dr. Jenny Safran. To learn more about her and for that free extra content I mentioned, go to paulmeyer.com, choose In a Manner of Speaking from the Other Services tab on the menu bar, and click on episode number 57. Don't forget to follow Paul My Dialect Services on Facebook and me on Twitter at Dialect Paul. Email me at paul at paulmeyer.com if you have a comment or question. My guest next month is Professor Gideon Burton. He knows as much about classical rhetoric as anyone else alive. Next time on In a Manner of Speaking. <laughs>